Husbands Talking More or Less is brought to you by the Cage Club Network for all things media, movies, music, comics, and more. Check out the Cage Club Network. That's cageclub.me. everybody i'm nico and i'm kevo and i'm joey so i'm sure you noticed we have a bonus husband with us this week Ooh. this is of course html husbands talking more or less and it's the most incredible thing because obviously we love joey he's not just an awesome dude but he's like the guy who runs this fucking podcast place and it just so happened when we went to go see dark phoenix that joey sent us a photo because he also had gotten the fan event item the whole reason we went to the fan event and he was literally right outside. So we had to sit next to each other. Joey, it's not just incredible to have you here, but it was awesome to get to see this movie with you. It was very, very exciting. And I don't know if we want to go how far peek behind the curtain we want to go, but I had never met you guys before, in person, of course, before last weekend, and then twice in five days. Just so happens, fate smiled upon us. When people meet us, they just can't get enough. So when we were trying to figure out exactly how to explain this dynamic kevo had a really excellent point he said that he feels like you're the lou grant to our mary tyler moores and all i can think is that is true we are definitely filled with spunk ah i'm so sorry can i have a more modern reference please <gasps> i'm should um, i leave i the planet i'll just leave I'll, I'll, I'll see myself out Jeez. okay uh as a child, when he saw the series finale of Mary Tyler Moore, which had ended many years before he was even born, Nico was so inconsolable that he could not go to school the next day. Well, that's why I haven't seen it, because I know that about Nico, and I don't want to <laughs> live through that devastation myself. Yeah, it was uh, it was a little too much for my, my gay little heart growing up. I was emotionally devastated by the end of Mary Tyler Moore. And speaking of emotionally devastating ends... Revolving around women who you love and idolize, we are here to discuss the one, the only, Dark Phoenix. If only it was the one and only. We really just wish it was the good one. <sighs> so, Joey, everybody knows that we've seen all of the X-Men films. Yes. Have you seen all the X-Men films? I have seen... Ooh, that's a good question. I've seen the original trilogy once. I saw... Not origins wolverine i missed that one i saw the wolverine i saw logan i saw the new trilogy and then i saw the new one so live action almost 100 percent, almost so and have you seen both deadpool Ugh, yeah i yeah mm -hmm. okay so you've seen all but one film essentially yeah, yes i think it's really funny because my bottom three movies of the x-men franchise are the wolverine dark phoenix and the last stand 
So you managed to... Well, no, I guess Wolverine Origins is a little worse than the Wolverine. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that's definitely the worst one. Definitely the part where Will I Am shows up and is is supposed to... Like, he just doesn't get lines. He's actually a fine actor, and his performance is okay, but he was definitely treated as the less necessary sort of lead. I'm getting off topic. Is this now and again? Yeah, that's exactly... I'm like, wait, no, I gotta get this back together because we're going Black Eyed Peas. We're about to go full Fergie on your ass. And speaking of Fergie at the National Anthem, this was also a disaster. I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but it has nothing to do with the changes. It has nothing to do with expectations. And my negative review of this film rests on three main tent poles. Number one, the film is problematic as fuck. This movie has more fridging than a Sears department store. Number two, this movie does not pay off on almost any of the promise of the previous films, period. And number three, despite excellent performances by especially the newer cast, the older cast smacked of so done. And here's something that I want to say, because I think a lot of people are behaving as though caring about the changes made to the story and the source material makes you unobjective as a viewer of this film. And I really don't think that that's fair. I really, really, really loved the 2017 version of Power Rangers. And that's speaking as someone who has loved Power Rangers not just since childhood, but throughout my adulthood as well. Don't be surprised if eventually we cover Power Rangers here on HTML because it's something that means a lot to the both of us. I am just as emphatic about that franchise, I would say, as Nico is about the X-Men. And they made a ton of changes for that film. That's not what bothered me. It's about maintaining the spirit and integrity of the original work and in so many ways this is literally not an x-men film except for the fact that it's starring the x-men if you can make a few minor adjustments and have it be a completely original story that has nothing to do with the x-men franchise that's not a good sign so i think two things there number one to go off on a Power Rangers tangent for a second, Power Rangers was one of my favorite things growing up as well. And when I saw that movie, it was the first time, I think, in recent memory, like in this whole re-upping of nostalgia sort of wave that we're in in Hollywood, it was the first time where I was in a theater and I was like, oh, I get it now. Where, like, everyone had these things that they grew up with and that were rebooted and they were so crazy about. And this was the first one I was like, oh, I get it. And I didn't, like, it wasn't my favorite movie of the year, but I really, really liked it no. a lot more than I thought it was going to like it. I just, I thought it was true to the original, and I thought that it was fun, and it was fun to watch, and it was fun to experience, and all sorts of stuff. X-Men I'm sort of distant-ish on. I enjoy them. When it's a good movie, it's a good movie. My favorite of the bunch, which I think is maybe also true of Nico, is First Class. Hell I, yeah! I really liked First Class a lot. I go into these without any of the backstory. I mean, I've spent more time in the last six months just based on listening to this show and Access for Podcast thinking about the X-Men than in my entire life leading up to this point. Like, I don't come in with baggage, for good or bad. Like, I will never have... I don't think I will ever love an X-Men movie the way that Nico could love an X-Men movie, but I will never hate an X-Men movie the way that Nico could hate an X-Men movie. And I think because of that, I didn't love Dark Phoenix... But I thought it was fine. Like, I liked it better than a lot of the other, not a lot of the other, but a handful of other movies from the summer. And I think because I'm sort of disconnected, I just kind of took it as this sort of generic-ish action movie with people, with characters that I had known for a decade or more, and enjoyed it for what it was. And I didn't love it, 
I gave it five flaming chicken nuggets out of ten, not to jump ahead of ourselves, but I didn't despise it because I don't have that connection, that closeness, that affinity to the property that would make me either really, really love it if it's great or really, really hate it if it's bad. Well, and to build off of something that you said and to jump into the BTS a little bit, part of the problem with this film is that it was never intended to be a summer film in the first place at any point. And I really think that shows they were hoping for this to be more of like a psychological thriller. Originally, it was scheduled to come out last November, and then it got pushed to February, thanks to reshoots. And then sources report that James Cameron pressured them to move X-Men because he was afraid that it would interfere with audiences responding to Alita. And the producers of Dark Phoenix begged Fox not to do it. But who are they going to listen to? This untested director, Simon Kinberg, who frankly co-wrote one of the worst X-Men films of all time, so he's lucky to have gotten this shot in their eyes. Or are they going to listen to James Cameron, who six weeks now after Endgame still has the highest grossing film of all time? And I think that's part of the problem here, that they didn't really know what they were doing with this film, and it never got very well treated by the studio. And to touch on one last behind-the-scenes thing that I don't think we can avoid, the entire third act of this film was reshot. Evidently, the film was too close to Captain Marvel and Civil War both, somehow. And I don't know, because once again, it seemed like the Phoenix's only power was the same thing as the Snap. So I think it might have also been too close to Endgame and Infinity War. Well, I think the traces of Civil War definitely still show in as far as there's a lot of mutant versus mutant, X-Men versus X-Men all battling over Jean, Jean being the sort of Bucky figure here. The vestiges of Captain Marvel were erased a little bit more easily because apparently the entire third act was going to be cosmic. They were going to go into outer space, which, as we are already aware, is very much the third act of Captain Marvel. And instead, they changed it to being on a train going to a mutant detainment center that apparently exists, and we're all just supposed to be fine with that after the movie ends. I... Yeah, you know, Joey, I don't know how you were able to watch this movie with the amount of weird noises I was making throughout (laughs) the entire film. Maybe that's why the, the group... So there was a group of people who showed up 45 minutes after the movie began and sat down directly behind us, and then after about 15 or 20 minutes got up and moved to a different seat. Maybe it was because of the noises. But I was also thinking, how are you to judge a theater situation, experience? Because this movie's not long, so they missed like a third to 40% of the movie. Like, that was the one, of the, one of the points where Kevo and I turned to each other just like, what is, what's happening here? So I did not hear the noises. You were, Kevo was sort of a, a wall, a buffer of sound between us, but I sort of got the vibe that you were not uh, digging this movie. I'd actually been a little bit concerned because one of the people that stood up with them walked out of the theater, and so I thought perhaps, like, they were going to get us in trouble for talking, but no, that man never came back. So, opening (laughs) night at 6 p.m., we had a walkout in our theater seeing Dark Phoenix. also of note is that I have the AMC A-list so I get to see three movies a week, quote-unquote, for free, and we had been joking leading up to this, and I don't want to, you know, keep shitting on the movie, but it is what it is. The box office receipts back this up. But we were joking about how we could just walk up to the theater for the fan event day of and just get a a seat. Like, it was not anywhere close to sold out. There were probably two-thirds empty seats in that theater, if if not more. If not more. And meanwhile, every fan event for Avengers Endgame sold out in minutes. 
There were lines out the door of people waiting with tickets to get in for our Avengers Endgame viewing. Well, and to take us back a little bit further, it was suggested by the writer of Dark Phoenix in January of 2016 that the Dark Phoenix saga could eventually be revisited thanks to the time reset of Days of Future Past. And January of 2016 is like four months in advance of what Apocalypse was. So this guy was talking about what the next film after Apocalypse was going to be even before Apocalypse came out. And then in April, it was pretty much confirmed that the dark phoenix saga was coming next so people were like already pretty hype and then apocalypse happened and was both a financial and critical disappointment to use the to use a kind word for it and at that point fox was interested in pressing a reset button on the franchise and honestly i don't see where they thought that was what they did because this doesn't feel like that in any way shape or form but at that point it became pretty clear that they were going to be doing dark phoenix i already revealed this to the boys earlier today but at one point they had been looking at angelina jolie for a role in this film the one that eventually went to jessica chastain it really makes me wonder if perhaps that would have enhanced the film but even at the time they were pretty aware that she was not going to say yes to something like this which makes it all the more interesting that now she's potentially going to join the mcu and it makes me wonder how this movie would have been different because if they thought to themselves the role that eventually went to jessica chastain was perfect for angelina jolie i don't think it's possible that this is that same role in the least angelina jolie is a dynamic passionate actress and jessica chastain gave what must have been the most bored performance i've ever seen in my life she never emoted she rarely moved and that was all of the characters in her sort of cadre that were you know the the bad guys of this film they all were very emotionless so i don't believe she did a terrible job but man her performance drove me nuts this is only the second thing I have ever seen her in. Uh, before this, she was apparently, I never realized, in a season one episode of Veronica Mars where she plays a pregnant runaway. She did not impress me 13 years ago on that show, and this didn't really impress me either. I know that other people are fans of her work. Joey, I think you had said that you liked her in some of the more serious films yeah. that she has done. So I really like her. She's great in Zero Dark Thirty and in Interstellar, which we covered. So Zero Dark Thirty was covered on this fine, fine podcast network by the contenders. Interstellar we did on Cinemakers because Christopher Nolan did that. She's been in a handful of things, The Tree of Life, Take Shelter, A Most Violent Year. She's been in really good things, and she's a great actress. My, I, I always joke on the podcast that I do with Mike that I have hair blindness, that when people change their hair for whatever reason, the way that I identify celebrities or actors and actresses in movies is by their hair, their color, their style, whatever. And so when she that. showed up with, like, no hair pigment, I was like, oh, I don't know. Oh, okay, Jessica Chastain. And I think it's weird that Sophie Turner, this very famous redhead, Phoenix, red hair, red, all color motif, to cast one of the very few actresses who have red hair, who is more famous than Sophie Turner, and then they just undo it all by giving her this, like, weird... <laughs> albino-esque color pigmentation with also no, like no eyebrows like it's it's a really weird look and between that and like you were saying yeah. the emotionless demeanor it's hard to really it's hard to hone in on who she is as an actress because she doesn't she doesn't look the part and she doesn't act the part that she has in a lot of other movies that I really love her in. I was convinced that she was going to reveal that this was secretly the Matrix reloaded the entire time. <laughs> 
and there was two of her, and she and the Colonel Sanders. Locks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and Colonel Sanders was behind the Phoenix all along. Well, I mean, flaming chicken. So yeah, it makes sense. Mm. I I really hear what you're saying too. It was a very odd look. I had no idea what to make of her character from the trailers alone, and it I I didn't really know what to make of her character after seeing the films. Even it was reported in summer of 2017 that her character was going to be the main villain Shi'ar Empress Lalandra, which is really funny to have found that information as I was doing the research for this episode because I definitely said to Nico like five times before we saw this movie. I bet you anything they're going to tell her she's Lalandra, and I'm going to walk out of that theater, and I was really prepared to if they tried to make her such a significant character from the X-Men comics franchise in such a bastardized way. So I strongly feel like she probably was at some point, and it's one of the many things that they had to pull back on, like how there were rumors that they had to pull back on the aliens being Skrulls. And instead, they are nameless aliens from Dabari. For those of you who haven't checked out all of the amazing episodes of X is for podcast, Dabari is the planet that Jean as the Phoenix devours. So it was kind of a cool nod to make them Dabari. Yeah, kind of. The only real BTS of significance that there is to talk about is the filming schedule of this movie. Originally filming ran from late June 2017 to mid-October 2017, which even when you consider when the film was originally slated to debut in November of 2018, that is such a significant gap in time. But then reshoots themselves only began in August of 2018, and this was back when they hadn't moved the film from February. So they were really on a tight schedule of doing these reshoots, and it makes it clear how much they were still scrambling to make this film toward the very end. Now, Joey, I don't know if you caught our last episode where one of the things they said was the main reason that the New Mutants reshoots haven't happened yet is because Fox is actually just bad at scheduling reshoots. Marvel films schedule reshoots when they schedule the initial film. Fox asks everybody to come back in if they can. That seems fun. I heard that in the last episode. That is, uh, seems like not good planning. Yeah. Well, the best laid plans of mice and flaming chickens. So, I guess there's nothing left to do, but, you know, and it's so, I can't, I just, look, I know that I am the Phoenix guy, right? The Phoenix's job is to burn away what doesn't work. Ironically, the Phoenix would have to consume this film. From the beginning, it doesn't work. In the movie, Jean's powers manifest, and she is responsible for the death of her mother. In the comics, Jean's powers manifest when her childhood best friend is struck by a car in front of her, and her childhood friend's kind of sort of like psychic death scream, awakens Jean's telepathy. I am not saying that comparatively this is worse. I'm saying if this had been the original, I would have found it grim, dark, and needless. This film begins on fridging a woman. Yes, it moves Jean's story forward, but we ultimately discover it is mostly to make Jean's dad evil. And frankly, it wasn't necessary to do. If they'd gone with the original story, they could have had it be that both of her parents were afraid of her and that would have been a lot less about daddy issues frankly and that's not something that i needed men to talk more about which is women having daddy issues another issue that i had with this opening sequence was the fact that it was several several minutes long and yet at no point whatsoever apart from gene's powers manifesting did we see anything that had to do with X-Men or powers? I was sitting there waiting the whole time for Charles Xavier to speak into Jean's mind 
to show her that she's not a freak, that she's not alone. And, like, it literally never happened once. And I think how dragged out that opening was did get to me a little bit. I thought some of the emotion was well-written. Honestly, that they specifically had Charles use language that didn't really befit Charles to help make it clear that he was trying to connect with this young girl was excellent. And I did think that was smart. But ultimately, I felt the film would have possibly been better without this as the opening. This made it all very on the nose. The audience was aware of what Jean wasn't, but ultimately was the source of her internal corruption by making the audience aware of it and gene not aware of it we're sitting there waiting for the shoe to drop it creates a sense of anxiety not a sense of positive anticipation but a sense of dread waiting for this to happen now joey i know you don't know the source material quite the same way what were your thoughts on gene being responsible for her mother's death well what i was just realizing which i didn't realize while we were watching the movie is that another <laughs> it's funny in a sense that this movie cannot separate itself from other superhero releases of this year like Keva was talking about the reshoots and civil war remnants and captain marvel similarities and all that but i don't know if you guys saw Shazam earlier this year at DC property i know this is a a marvel household but Shazam begins with the villain as a young child in a car and there's another traumatic event in the car there too and I just don't know how this movie keeps finding itself in these storylines that mimic other movies that like just came out. Neither here nor there. I don't really mind the opening. I think it's maybe a little bit long. I think it's maybe a little cliche. I think it was fine overall. My bigger problem with that is that the dad element of it all is never really played through. Like, there's no real through line. Like, we just assume, like Jean does, that he's gone. Then she gets an inkling. She sort of senses. She hears him speaking right in her brain. And she goes and finds him and then resolves it. And there's no, like, build up to the payoff. It's just, he was dead. Now he's alive. And now she's mad at Charles. And it's just like, oh, okay. Like, that was my bigger problem. I didn't really mind the opening as much as the fact that the opening was the storyline, the beginning of a storyline that carried throughout the entire movie that they just didn't decide to flesh out. Ooh, really good description. I'm so glad you called it fine. Kevo, what did you think? Well, here's the thing, though. I always expected that it was going to come back, literally only because of how much of the plot was spoiled repeatedly by the trailers. Simon Kimberg celebrated the fact that they essentially revealed that Raven was going to die in the trailers because he wanted people to know that they weren't pulling their punches. And then literally every single moment after that is exclusively pulling their punches. Not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but she's pretty much the only significant character other than the titular Dark Phoenix who dies in this film. So you didn't not pull your punches. You very much did, and then you revealed the only major death in your trailers. Actually, just real quick, by my math, five named characters die in this film. Four of them are female or female presenting. And this is the first fridge strike against this movie for me. This movie is supposed to be a movie celebrating a powerful woman in comics, and they kill four women. And I just don't know why I'm supposed to be okay with that. Well, what's funny is a quote from December after the initial filming period from Simon Kinberg was that 
The film was supposed to focus on the female characters more so than previous films in the series. I don't know how you can go out there and say something like that when you made this film. I, I, I think another huge problem I had with the opening, though, was the pacing of it, which is a problem I had with the film overall. I feel like we spent so long lingering on these bizarre moments, and then to move us into the next part of the film... There's no development of 1992. It's just all of a sudden, it is nine years after Apocalypse, and all of the X-Men are heroes, and they are immediately going into a mission. There's absolutely no backstory of how they became this celebrated, and there is very little focus at all on people celebrating them, apart from there's a crowd waiting for them when they land after their mission. Like, there is no real focus at all on the outside world, which I had said... After we watched Apocalypse, I don't know how they are going to top the globalization of the story that they did in Apocalypse, where the entire world was affected and we saw all of these things, and then they didn't. And it's sort of in that same ridiculous vein that I kind of felt this whole intro, this whole opening was kind of teal deer. It was very, oh, there's people in space. Oh, we need the X-Men. Oh, we called Xavier. They're getting on a plane. Someone has reservations. Now they don't. Now they're in space. Now it's the mission. They spent so long on that dumb opening, and then they spent less time on getting the X-Men into space. I think they were relying on the fact that, oh, people know who the X-Men are, but that's not how you make a film. And I sure don't know these fucking X-Men. We made a comment earlier that my favorite movie is First Class, and it is. And the thing about First Class that's the most interesting is it is, in my opinion, the most different X-Men movie from canon. It is... A team like none other that has never existed. It is such a weirdly cobbled together group. This group was more in line with the X-Men, and I still didn't recognize them. It also doesn't help that this is the beginning of nobody having a character arc. All of Jean's development comes from the cosmic entity that is not the Phoenix. That is the next thing I want to touch on. The Phoenix seems to be a fiery power inside Jean. This cosmic entity is not the Phoenix. It is not referred to as the Phoenix. Jean manifested the Phoenix Raptor in 1983 in the battle with Apocalypse. Whatever the fuck this thing is, is not the Phoenix. Jean already has that. So this wasn't even really a Phoenix movie. It really wasn't a Jean Grey movie. I don't know what this was supposed to be about. I will say that I found a lot of the space action really exciting. Like for me, that was some of the coolest Nightcrawler action. I feel like they always pull back on Nightcrawler. Joey, maybe now you can kind of get why Jonah and I freak out about Storm and Nightcrawler all the time. Oh, sure. And, uh, you know, I have a very important question for you that I don't want to spoil because I don't know if that comes into play down the road in Excess for Podcast. I know you probably have crossover listeners, but when I asked you that very important question about Storm and then you said yes, and then you told me that jaw-dropping fact, like Storm is the best part of this movie, I think, right? Can we agree on that? Is Storm the best part of this? A hundred percent. I thought the actress who played Storm, like, I, I haven't stopped saying that I have one very positive review of this movie. Specifically, the actors who played, and kind of sort of in this order, nobody get mad, but Storm, Jean, Nightcrawler, and Scott were some of the most genuinely powerful, passionate X-Men character performances I've ever seen. I thought the four of them, I would love it if the four of them played these characters forever, even if it means a reboot they come back for. And that's something that I want to draw attention to as well and say specifically, definitively, because we haven't made it clear, we all really enjoyed Sophie Turner's performance, oh, and she was so a great... Jean Grey. I literally almost started crying when she woke up after sucking in that cosmic radiation and the first thing that she says that she struggles to get out is is everyone okay? 
that was so significant. And I loved her characterization in this film. I also really enjoyed what little characterization we got from Mystique. This was a horrible final chapter for that character, but every moment that she is on screen, I absolutely love everything that she brings to the film. I love the way that she gives it to Charles for his fame whoring, which is an arc that goes nowhere. But I, I really thought that she was amazing for what she was in. Before I kick it over to Joey, because Joey, I would love to know your opinion on Jennifer Lawrence, because I feel like she is a almost controversial actress. Mm-hmm. I I thought that there was kind of a moment of fan service where they say they should be called the ex-women because we run things. But the fact is, within 30 minutes of that line, one of the ex-women dies, and the next ex-woman who will die leaves the team because she has now become corrupt from her daddy issues, and then her secondary daddy issues caused by her adoptive father, right? So once they make that that line, that ex-women crack, they immediately follow it up by erasing the ex-women. And what a way to pat yourself on the back for nothing. So I'm sorry, what's your opinion on Jennifer Lawrence? (laughs) Well, I was just going to say that that would be like if, you know, in Endgame, what I've told you both is my favorite line, where it's she has help, and then as they're escorting her across the battlefield, every single one of the female characters gets killed. Like one, like there goes Pepper, there goes Valkyrie, there goes Wasp, there goes everybody. It's just like, oh, I guess she didn't really have help, so. Stop going after my favorites! Um, I really, really like Jennifer Lawrence. I don't like everything that she's ever done. I don't like Silver Linings Playbook. There's certain movies that I don't love, but going all the way back to Winter's Bone, another movie that the contenders covered on here, even before she was Katniss, I really, really liked her as an actress. I think Mother, that came out a year or two ago, is one of the best movies of the last, like, five years. I think it's insane and wonderful. She's great. I, I very think, much agree. I think I she's good in this. I don't, like, when I think of her, I don't, I don't know if I would Again, maybe this is just my distance from this franchise. I don't know that I would think of her as Mystique anywhere near the top of the list of the characters that I would say. Like, I would say the movies that I said and Katniss, and if you're like, she's in two franchises, like, yeah, Hunger Games, and I don't remember the other one. Like, I think part of that is just the fact that she's blue most of the time. And I literally was like, wait, what's the other franchise she's in? Yeah, this and it's Hunger this Games. It's and, this one. Oh my god. And I just, I think it's maybe because she doesn't look like herself. Like, you know... I, I, I don't know. I, I really like her as an actress. I think she's great in here. I just don't associate... I don't think, in the in the grand scheme of things... You know, we were talking about how Michael Fassbender... I think it was... I think it was, I was talking to you guys about how he's doing all franchise movies, right? Like, he's doing a lot of different... He's, he's sort of going for things. He's going for Prometheus. He's going for this. He's going for that. And he did Assassin's Creed that went nowhere. Exactly. And he's trying to... He's taking these big swings to become this massive actor in, like, the biggest movies of the year... Even though, like, you go back to earlier movies he was in, like, Shame, where he's a sex addict. And you're like, oh, he's great. And I don't know why he wants, like, not that these are not as good movies as other ones, but I, I wonder why he's really going for that instead of trying to go for a balance. And I think Jennifer Lawrence is kind of doing a balance. Like, she's doing the massive, massive movies where she's making, you know, 10, 15, 20 million dollars a picture or whatever. But she's also doing indie movies where she actually really gets to flex her creative muscles. And I think she is sort of threading that needle very well. Honestly, yeah. My favorite young adult series of all time is Hunger Games. And I felt like she made Katniss so real for me. And I only think her mystique makes sense in first class. Matthew Vaughn's take on mystique is probably one of the greatest outside of, funny enough, Brian K. Vaughn. Well, I I even hear what you're saying with that. But I do think that her characterization carries through the rest of the films. But 
as with most of the characterizations of these versions of these characters, it's a lot down to the actors and what they bring to the table. I do frequently think of this performance of Mystique when I think of Jennifer Lawrence, but I don't think of the actual classic character of Mystique because she is so, so very different. I actually, and to jump ahead, I actually found it insulting that the school was not renamed the Raven Dark Home School for Gifted Youngsters. I understand that they were hearkening back to the school's renaming to Jean from the comics, but this is also its own individual entity, as based on the fact that Raven's a fucking professor at Charles's school, and she knew him for 50 years. That was something, too. I, I guess they were trying not to draw attention to how old these actors are supposed to be. There's a meme going around showing the three of the different Michael Fassbender Magnetos, and then Ian McKellen's pointing to the fact that this is what he's supposed to look like in eight years. Charles and Eric are supposed to be about 60 years old in this film. Raven's known Charles for 50 years, and I kept expecting her to throw that in his face when he was really talking down to her and talking to her like she's one of the kids, but she's known him longer than literally any living person. Oh, man. I'm so glad we're doing this because I found, I found myself at a crossroads when I was watching this film. Was it as bad as all the reviews said? No. But the fact that even Hans Zimmer couldn't elevate this film for me really said something about the interpretation of the material. Do we have anything else on the space mission, or do we want to really address when they get back home and everything changes? Go for it. I I guess if I want to address anything, it's just that I at least appreciate that they went on a space mission, and Jean was affected by cosmic radiation that awoken her primal power and the limitlessness of her ability. In that way, in terms of a sentence read on Wikipedia about the Dark Phoenix saga... They did get that much right, but it pretty much goes downhill from there. I want to make a really clear shout out. I love Dazzler. I love Allison Blair. I remember being 12 years old and walking to the comic shop that used to be in town, Zap Comics, and I had to walk literally like three miles, and I had secretly saved up all my lunch money, like pulling it in because they had gotten in an old Dazzler action figure that still had the roller skates in the box, and I was going to spend $20 at 12 years old to get a classic mint-on-card action figure. And I was so excited, and the second I got it home, I tore the box apart and had to play with her. It was like my favorite action figure, and it hung out with all my Jean Grey action figures, and I fucking love Dazzler, and I would have loved it if she had a goddamn line of dialogue. Well, I have to ask you who she was, because this, again, fits into my, I don't know who these people are, brain, mentality, whatever. But we talked about, as we were leaving the theater, the Zac Efron, the Zef Nection to this movie, that she is his girlfriend and neighbors, but the other leading lady and neighbors, Rose Byrne, nowhere to be seen. So I think that's a, I just want to pimp, a pimp uh, Zach Attack, another podcast here on the network. If you, if you love Zach Efron, go check out that podcast. But I also, it's a very weird, like, I guess, is that just fan service that she's singing in the woods at yes. this party, doesn't have a line, looks cool as hell, but I have no idea who that is. It's one of those things where, like, after a handful of early MCU movies that I saw with friends, I'd be like, Wait, so explain what that post credit scene is. Like, who is the collector? Like, I don't know who that is. Like, is that... That was the best review. Oh my- <laughs> I, I imagine that they were just going for, it's a teen party in the woods, so it'd be cute if one of them had powers that made there be music. 
let's make it be Dazzler. People will enjoy that, especially because Dazzler is in the Dark Phoenix saga. And controversial opinion, I don't appreciate her first appearance and her contribution to the Dark Phoenix saga. I think that she's kind of rude and unhelpful throughout the entire thing. I know that she's a beloved character, so I appreciate her. And I thought it was a nice touch. I would have liked better from her, but I wouldn't have wanted what her original involvement was necessarily either. One of the great things about Dazzler and her contributions to the X-Men is she was the first female mutant to get her own series. And X's for Podcast actually starts covering that a week from when this episode goes up. We'll be covering Dazzler and the new Defenders alongside brand new co-host Warpath Dylan. This guy's amazing. His library of knowledge is unparalleled. The guy has issue numbers memorized like he's me or something and jonah and i are so excited to have brought him on the three of us will be hosting dazzler and the new defenders going forward you definitely want to check that out before we get away from this party scene i do want to give credit to one of the best moments in the movie is where storm makes ice cubes with her hands that was like the best part of the movie I do want to say something, too, though. You made a point about a minute ago that I really wish you hadn't because I completely forgot that Rose Byrne was absent in this movie. After that bizarre moment at the climax where Charles returns her memories, I I forgot because I didn't see anything anywhere about her potentially being involved in this film. I actually did find that Lana Condor and Olivia Munn, who played Jubilee and Psylocke respectively, were potentially going to be in this movie but had to film to all the boys i've loved before and the predator respectively Mm. and that was why we had two fewer female mutants in this film i didn't see anything about why rose byrne was not in this movie or that they even attempted to put her in this movie i don't know where she would have gone but it's another one of those things that we mentioned of arcs getting absolutely no payoff i feel like they had to know that this was potentially going to be their last film with all of the whispers going on about Fox being acquired by Disney. And there was just no effort made to have this be a conclusive final chapter to this decade's X franchise in so many ways. So I have a question about that. So I think, well, two, I guess two parts. Number one, you might have mentioned it earlier, I might have forgotten, but weren't there rumors or wasn't there talk that Jennifer Lawrence didn't think she was doing another movie, or there were at least one or if not multiple actors in this movie who didn't think they were going to come back for another movie and then they're like, oh, I guess I'm playing that character again. That's number one. But number two, now that Marvel, now that Disney owns X-Men again, we've talked about, we sort of hinted at, alluded to a reboot of some kind, sort of a, a welcoming into the MCU. Do you, Is there a way, tactfully, I guess, to bring some of these actors as these characters into this world without bringing everyone? Like, obviously, if you're going to retell... Maybe not, obviously. But obviously, if you re- retell the X-Men story, you need a, you need a mystique, so maybe you recast that. Or, I, I don't know, like, is there a way to blend the good parts of this franchise, of the, late, of the last four movies or so, with the MCU? Or does it, like, do you have to do, like, a hard kind of reboot, hard refresh? We're going to hit you with the one-two, Nico Kevo. Kevo's going to go first answering your first question. Love it. Yeah, actually, the contracts for McAvoy, Fassbender, Lawrence, and Holt had all expired after three films. And it was how much everyone loved working with Simon Kinberg that helped talk them back into it. 
they were certainly not necessarily interested in coming back, especially Jennifer Lawrence and Nicholas Holt, who hate the makeup process. It's part of why Mystique looks so different in this movie, and I'm sure it's why all of a sudden Beast developed a power where he can transform back and forth between the unbelievably sexy Nicholas Holt and his Beast form, even though an enormous part of Beast's story and his characterization is the fact that he is trapped in his blue furry form forever. He can just morph now. Okay. Um, he just reached Hulk-level uh, sentience, I guess. I can't even talk about how it completely betrays the spirit of what X-Men is supposed to be in the first place. It's so fucking stupid, and I'm trying not to be too condescending or mean about too much about this film, but that one really does hit me hard, considering how much the X-Men metaphor speaks to everyone who doesn't feel like they fit in society, including queer folk. But yeah, they were able to talk all of them back for this film. Originally, their contracts had expired. I imagine that speaks to why there is so little of Jennifer Lawrence in the film. It's worth noting specifically that as soon as Raven exits is when Eric comes in, and they never cross paths in this entire movie. Same with Quicksilver, actually. Quicksilver and Mystique both essentially depart the film at the same time, and Magneto and the second half cast show up. I believe Jessica Chastain only has about three minutes of screen time before that as well. And that, again, is another arc that we are going to see absolutely no resolution to after making such a big deal about Peter choosing not to tell Eric in the last movie that he's his father. We then never see them cross paths in this movie. It's just something that is completely forgotten after being developed for two films. But now I think Nico has an answer for your second question, which is whether or not actors from this franchise could potentially cross over as their characters in the MCU after the acquisition. So the reality is Marvel has done alternate universe before. They had ultimate as a line. And in the ultimate universe, yeah, sometimes you had some Nicholas J. Fury levels of difference where the original Nicholas Fury kind of looks like Hasselhoff and ultimate Nick Fury just looks so much like Sam Jackson that's why they cast Sam Jackson. So, yeah, there's definitely times where the characters look completely different. There's also a million percent of the time where they just don't bother redesigning the character physically in any way, and you wouldn't be able to tell which one's Ultimate and which one's 616 main continuity by anything but the costume. So, I completely think they should be able to bring over a number of these actors if they want to. I don't think they're going to let Ryan Reynolds go. No, I don't think they could. I think that would be... Like, he's... He's got to be the mo I mean, I don't know, like, of all the... I still don't remember. Like, that's, again, my distance from this. But I don't I don't think of Deadpool as within the X-Men universe, even though he very clearly is. The fact that, you know, Cable and Colossus and Negasonic Teenage Warhead and everybody are in his movie. Um, yeah, they can't... There's there's no there's no version of the MCU future where where Ryan Reynolds as Deadpool does not exist. But I think it's it's a different beast, no pun intended, when you have when you have a family of fifteen or twenty sort of note notable, if only from these movies, actors as these characters, to maybe be like, okay, yeah, so Storm and Beast and this and that, you guys are gonna come over, but we're gonna recast Xavier and Magneto and whoever. Because I think I feel like it's either and I, as much as I sort of I don't I don't know I don't know what they do. That's I think it's I don't I don't know if this has ever happened before in the history of Hollywood, because I don't think we've ever had this many reboots and mergers and the specific amount of things that happened to lead us to this point, but I think it would just be a strange thing to either have some. I feel like it's probably an all-or-nothing proposition, but maybe not. I don't know. I think we're going to see a similar fate with Suicide Squad, which is a partial reboot, sort of, 
a little. I don't quite understand, but evidently that is what Suicide Squad is. It's a partial reboot. Only one or two actors will be coming back. Some will be recast. Some will be new characters. It's going to be fascinating. Well, yeah, because then they, they cast Idris to be Deadshot. This is getting way off tangent. But Idris to be Deadshot, and then they're like, just kidding, he's going to be a new character. So I don't know. I also feel like DC is just trying to do its own thing that works, which is kind of fun. But just, I think there's there's pressure and there's difficulty on the Marvel side of things that DC doesn't have because of the success of the MCU. And because of what you talked about for the first 30 episodes or 35 episodes of the show before you get to the Dark Phoenix saga, that there's such history with these characters and with these stories that you kind of, like, this could go wrong. I don't think it's going to, because I think that people over at Marvel are very smart about what they do, but this could go wrong if you sort of blend this in in a weird way. And I, I have absolute faith in them, but there's pressure here to make sure you get it right. And I think they're going to take their time for that reason. I think they are fully aware that whenever they do choose to introduce the X-Men into their franchise, it will probably be at least received with genuine positive curiosity. I don't think it'll be for another five, maybe even ten years. And with the staying power of the MCU having been proven over the course of the last 11 years, I think it's pretty fair to not necessarily introduce them any sooner than that. Even though, as we were discussing after the movie ended, that there are literally armed guards in MCU attire in this movie taking the X-Men from their home. So uh, the metaphors are out there, ladies and gentlemen. It makes me think back to the second season finale of Veronica Mars when UPN and the WB merged and no one was really sure which shows were going to be saved and which shows were going to be axed. And one of the lines in the second season finale is one character says to another one, CW, which is the person's initials, and the other person says, it's a done deal, which is a very meta commentary on the show being picked up by the new network. And I actually, especially considering what a critical and financial failure this franchise has been in so many ways, I kind of found the MCU joke a little bit tasteless. It kind of felt like they were taking a swipe at the MCU for quote-unquote stealing the mutants from them. But this is more like somebody came in and took your abused pet away from you. You did not treat this franchise well enough for you to make fun of the people that are coming in to probably do a better job than you did. It just, it's punching down, or like, punching up, but like, pathetically. To me, at least. Well, it seems like this episode is a little more jam-packed with emotions, <laughs> reality, and response than we expected. So I think we're gonna have to split this bad mamma jamma in two, which frankly is what they should have done with this fucking movie. Ooh. So, uh, Joey... Where can everybody find you until we come back to burn away what doesn't this movie? Well, you can go to cageclub.me slash Joey and see all the shows that I'm on. The most important one, well, there's two most important things. Number one, Too Fast, Too Forever. Every other Tuesday, we're watching the Fast and Furious movies forever. Stay tuned on that feed because there may be, sooner or later, two guest hosts for an entire lap that you know and you love. So stay tuned there. And then every Friday... The day after this comes out, Tom Tom Club, Tom Cruise, Tom Hanks, Mike Manzi and I go through. We're alternating the, the films of both of those actors. Tom Hanks' early movies, just about the death of us. 
but Tom Cruise thankfully picking up the slack with some really, really, really great stuff early on. So every other Tuesday, Too Fast, Too Forever. Every Friday, Tom Cruise, Tom Hanks, Hanks for the Memories, and Cruise Club. I love that you kind of have two double things going on. Sure, absolutely. Because it's like Tom Tom, and it's like fa fa. Kevo, where can everybody find you? You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Kevo Really, K E V O R E A L L Y, and you can also find me on the Facebook page for this show, Husbands Talking More or Less at Official HTML on Facebook. You can also find all of the really cool, really fun, super inclusive superhero comics that I produce with this guy over here and our small team over at KidRiotComics.com. And Nico, what about you yourself? You guys can find me kicking around this awesome website, making shows like Now and Again with my childhood best friend Chris, where we talk about pop music through the lens of the Now That's What I Call Music series. We spent the summer focusing on Carly Rae Jepsen like you do. We even had Captain Joey on an episode. It was a lot of fun. Sure did. And you can also find me on the aforementioned X's for Podcast, where we talk about the X-Men comic book franchise, because clearly I do not get to talk about X-Men enough. You can catch me wearing very little clothing over on Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And until we come back to burn away this movie, I'm not going to stop making the reference, we will see ya. See ya. Caw-caw!